Well, good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today we reach the final corrective statement from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount as he confronts false teachings from the Pharisees. This particular correction is perhaps the hardest as it addresses the human tendency for retribution, anger, and hatred to those that we would deem our enemies. It's also one of the most convicting passages as Jesus outlines that our actions and attitudes and behaviors are flowing from a life that is either in relationship with our Heavenly Father through Jesus or out of relationship with Him. Thanks for listening as we continue in our study of the Spirit of the Law. I was digging through some boxes uh, this past week. You know those kind that you put in storage that stay in the attic and gather uh, cobwebs? And one of the things that I found was a small collection of these little pots that I made when I was in high school. took a pottery class, and apart from the few moments where I wasn't goofing around with my friends, I actually made a couple little... Oh, they're terribly ugly. Don't let me, don't let me t- tease you here. They're terrible. But I love them. Um, You know, if you're going to make a pot the right way, you throw the clay on the wheel and you spin it up just right. But I always liked my pots to have a little more character. So right about the time they were done, I'd give them a little wobble to them. So they had this very artistic shape. That's a good excuse to a bad potter is is how you do that. Well, here in storage, they had, I, I pulled the tape off some and there was gunk on it. And then one another was rubbing up against the one next to it. And it was kind of, uh scratched and uh, one had what I don't know how many years of residue in the bottom had congealed into a muck, right? I mean, they they were just in rough shape. Now, anybody who had uh, any sense would say, throw those in the trash, right? That's what they would say. They're no good, Uh, but they're mine. And you know what? I kind of like them because I made them. And and, and it's my job here to, to clean them up and scrub them clean and Uh, Though if the pot was sentient on itself, it might not like the one sitting next to it, for it would be putting its uh, gunk onto the one next to it, if it could. But I see him differently. And this is how God sees you. This is how God sees all of us. You know, there there are some who in their lives uh, are abrasive to those next to them and cause wounds uh, to those who are next to them. There, there are some of us who have a kind of gunk for years of just baggage that somehow spews onto those next to us. And we might want to distance ourselves from them or retaliate back against those who are uh, making our lives a little more smelly or a little more worse or taking chips out of the corner of our lives. That's not how God sees us. God looks down on his creation and he sees Each and every one as valuable, not because they're awesome in and of themselves, not because they meet any measure of purity or stylistic uh, ability. You have value because he made you, because you are his. See, but we don't see each other this way. We don't look to one another in this fashion. Unfortunately, we would... Uh, quickly judge one another. We would quickly want to uh, defend ourselves against one another and in many cases even refer to each other as an enemy with one another. But that is not how God looks at us. And for any who follow after Jesus Christ, 
we must have our perceptions drawn in accordance with his viewpoint of how he looks at us. That we would change our view to one another and adopt thereafter God's view for one another. We have over the past six weeks been studying the Sermon on the Mount. Um, We're almost bringing it to a conclusion, even though we won't make it through all three chapters that Matthew records. We've only been looking in specifically at those times where Jesus corrects the false interpretation of the law that came from the Pharisees. As a point of reminder, as we've been over this, I want you to know Jesus is not bringing a new interpretation. Jesus isn't reading the law that God gives and then saying, oh, yeah, let me tell you what I think it means. Jesus is hereby giving us insight into what the law always intended to say. And it was the Pharisees, it was the religious teachers of Jesus's day that had taken God's word and twisted it up in such a fashion that those who knew they were unrighteous could fool others into thinking they were. They they could twist the law in such a way that their actions were actually depraved, but they gave the illusion of being righteous. And this is what Jesus means each and every time that he comes and he says, you've heard that it is said, but I say to you. And so today we reach the last one of those. Um, Next week, we're going to do a kind of a concluding message that looks at the overview. Um, I want to draw a few more things to to conclusion. But for today, we're at the last time where Jesus will say specifically, you've heard that it said, but I say to you. And the subject for this morning is the subject of love. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to take a picture. We're going to see, as Jesus lays out for us, a pattern of our own perception and thinking that has to follow in accordance with God's perception and how he thinks of us. Uh, Page 1380 in the Pew Bibles for Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be reading through verses 43 through 48. Everybody ready? I didn't hear a single peep out of you. You all ready? Okay, here we go. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Okay, Uh, this passage here, I put it up on the screen, uh, is one that in, uh, if you have a King James Bible, it'll read just a little bit differently. There was a a variant in the text where they tried to harmonize Luke's record of what Jesus says here with Matthew's account. I just want to show you that very briefly. For in Luke's account in chapter 6, Luke records Jesus saying the words, um, uh, love your enemies, 
And, and then at the very end, you have a pray for those who persecute you. That's what Matthew records. But right in the middle, uh, Luke adds uh, what Jesus said in a little fuller sense. Jesus says, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who persecute you. So a very a fuller sense of this is this is what some early scribes did is to try to harmonize these. They inserted what Luke recorded into Matthew's gospel so that you can see it up here on the screen. I I only bring that to your attention because this would be the fuller teaching that we would want to wrap our arms around, uh, even recognizing, however, that Matthew's gospel was recorded a little bit shorter, and that's fine. But here, Jesus giving, these are the actions by which a Christ follower will be characterized with. I want to offer you just two conclusions, just, just two, that's Like a lot less than I normally do, right? Don't worry, I'll make up the difference. Here we go. The first one is this. Our treatment of others must not depend on who they are to us or what they've done to us. The Pharisees were, and and the religious teachers, I really feel like they were just a slimy bunch. You, You know that the Bible says, love your neighbor. Everybody give me a nod, right? You know, the Bible says, love your neighbor, right? Do you know that the Bible in no place says, but hate your enemy? If you look back with me in the text in verse 43, he says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That is foreign to the entirety of the Old Testament. Now, you do have a few examples where it looks as though actions that are retributive or actions that are judgmental are being given to people that you can interpret as being hateful. But nowhere in the Bible do you see love your neighbor, but it's okay to hate your enemy. But the religious leaders were teaching that. If you were to go to church 2,000 years ago and listen to those guys preach, that's exactly the message that you would hear. You would hear, hey, you need to love your neighbor, but you can hate your enemy. Absolutely. You can, and, and, and you are justified in it. God hates them too. That, I actually feel like some churches, unfortunately, say things similar to this. That there is a justified form of hate. Now, without going too much further on this, I do want you to understand one of the primary problems for, for the disjunction of the paradox as to why the Old Testament looks as though judgment is coming out, but why is, come on, track with me here now, right? You've heard people say, doesn't Jesus seem different than God, God in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New? Don't they seem different, right? Isn't God in the Old always like killing people and genocide, right? That's God of the Old Testament, but Jesus is all love, 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 right? Isn't Come on, you guys with me? Haven't you heard that before? People sometimes think that. Here's the problem with it. When you think of God in the Old Testament, God is not acting out of vengeance or personal vengeance. God is acting through his people, through the Israelites, through the Hebrews, when they are to conquer another people group. That is God's justice over them. It's not personal. It's not like there was an individual Jewish guy who was like, I'm going to go do this thing, and God's giving me thumbs up for it. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh That's never part of God's design. I'm not sure if you're tracking with where I'm going on this, but let me just tell you, there is right and correct judgment for which God has appointed government. Everybody track with me on that? You are not the government. See the difference? 
The, the, those who God has appointed to serve in these places and make decisions are functioning in a way, specifically in the Old Testament, and many times still by God's sovereignty today, as a judgment over evil in our world. But that is never a permission that is granted to you and I on the individual basis. Are you tracking with me? You see where I'm going with this? Because that is the problem with the teaching of the Pharisees. The teaching of the Pharisees was taking something that was regulated to God's instrument of justice over the nations, right and good, the correct purpose of government. And they were applying that teaching to themselves independently to say, ah, I can do these things now because I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but I can hate my enemies. And that's nowhere to be found. It's foreign from the scriptures. In fact, I want to give you a a, a reminder of what Lane read for us this morning out of Ephesians 6. Here is the problem that we have with one another. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. You you got anybody out there who irritates you? No honest Christians in church this morning? You you just love everybody, right? Yeah, if, if you've got anybody out there who rubs you the wrong way, somebody who you would deem an enemy, listen to me as loud and clear as you can this morning. Your struggle with them is not with them. Your struggle, your your frustration, your anger with them, it's not with them. It's with the sin that is infecting them. They are victims themselves of the corruption of this world. And there is an active agent of evil seeking to divide us, seeking to speak lies of bitterness and gossip and little words that sting and stay like nails in our hearts that we would want to vengefully act in retaliation as if they were our enemies. Your struggle is not with them. Look who it's with. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so here's what this means for us. It means, first of all, the Pharisees' teaching is dead wrong. You get no freedom or liberty to hate your enemy. Aren't you glad you came to church today? You don't get to hate your enemy. That is not God's character on display. Remember, God will judge. You, you, you rest assured, every wrong, every sin, any evil that's been done against you or, or me, it'll be handled. God will handle that. He, he's, not, he's not taking his eye off the ball. He's not forgot to write down and keep a measure of those wrongs that need to be righted. He will take care of that in time. But revenge is not something that you get to enact. You leave that to God. For these smelly, stinky pots around us are just like us. They, they're loved by God. God's desire is for all to come to repentance, even though he leaves so much of his will for his perfect love for humanity to be left in unenacted by the freedom that he has given in your ability to choose or, or reject him. And so here we find Jesus coming to correct the Pharisees. And he says in verse 44, But I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and from Luke's gospel, do good to them. So your battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the evil that resides because of sin and corruption in our world. 
This means you don't get to treat others because of how they treat you. Now, didn't we cover this last week? I know I wasn't here, but there was a video, right? What does it say? An eye for a... We've got to be careful with that, right? Even though God is a God of justice, that is not the calling that we are given as Christ followers. And without repeating the same message uh, as I offered last week, you have four active verbs as to how you are to treat, treat these people, very similarly as we have today. But I want to move on here because I want to give you a second conclusion. So first of all, the way you treat others is not dependent on how they treat you. Okay, okay, well tell me what it's dependent on. How, how am I supposed to treat others? Well, your treatment of others must depend on how you have been treated by God. So let me ask you the question. How have you been treated by God. Anyone in church this morning sin against God? Ooh, eye for an eye, right? You are an enemy with God. That means God gets to hate you, right? Hear me loud and clear. God hates sin. He hates sin and rightly should. And those who embody sin as active agents of it fall rightly under his wrath and hatred. But that doesn't mean God hates his creation. And you and I do not get to hate one another for this. We're called to love one another for how is it God has treated you? With hatred or with mercy? With vengeance or with long-suffering and kindness and patience. Do, do you see the picture here? This, this is it. I know it's, a, it's kind of a tough one this morning, but there you go. Two conclusions. I wanted to give it to you straight. You are not permitted to treat others in the way that they've treated you and define your actions based upon what they've done or who they are according to you. Rather, we treat each other according to how we have been treated by the authority that is above us. And so it, it asks, forces us to ask the question, how has God treated us? And so here we have now, if you look with me back into the Bible, verse 44, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Jesus, and this is a little bit tough right now, especially if you're sitting there thinking, you can, you can preach for hours, Pastor, but I am never going to forgive this person. You, you can sit up there and preach till you're out of breath, but I am never going to love this person for what they've done to me. And, and so you, you're ready for the, for the catch? You're ready for the really hard part of this? Look with me again in verse 45. What is this conditioned on? The characteristic of somebody who prays for those who persecute you, the characteristic of somebody who loves his enemies is the characteristic of somebody, verse 44, who is a what of your father, a, ch- a child of God. We have the word son here. You could e- equally insert the word daughter. You will be proving yourself to be a son or a daughter of the king if you characterize yourself after him. It's the converse of this that's hard. Do you know, do you know how you could prove yourself not to be a Christian? Yeah, hate your enemy. Don't forgive. You're a child of someone, but not a child of God, if that is the characteristic of your life. And so that's the catch. That's where it gets a little bit hard. Am I or am I not a Christian? Because a Christian has certain characteristics that have no belonging in this world. 
They don't exist anywhere. You cannot look down any street and find them in any other religion other than Christianity. And so I want to give you four, char- four of these characteristics of how we would determine and identify a Christian. Number one is this. A Christian is a new creation. So the, your ability to do this does not come from you. Rather, you have to die and be reborn. Uh, here, here's a great passage. This is 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, The new has come. I put in your sermon notes two other characteristics here that identify this. I'm using the um, masculine pronoun he, but you you could put a she in there as well. So when I'm talking about Christian, I'm mainly just talking about myself here, right? He has died to his old self, but a non-Christian is concerned only with his self. The best illustration I can give you for this is either what it looked like before I was married or before I had children. Now, now before I got married, whose agenda was I concerned about? I, I, I could leave anytime I want. I could go anywhere I want. I could do anything I want, right? Because the only person I care about is me, myself, and I, right? But what happens when you get married? Two become one. And now it's not only myself I get to think about. Now it's someone else. Uh, do, do you see? I, I, I'm changed. I'm something new now. The old is gone. The new has come. Very similarly, I remember the moment I held my son in my arms for the first time. My wife there having a cesarean on the table. And she was, she was out of it. She was just, in fact, the, Micah was crying. And she looked up at me like this. She scrunched, she scrunched her brow. And I, I was like, Doc, is she okay? What's, what's wrong? I said, honey, what's wrong? And she, there was a baby that was crying. And she said, is that my baby crying? <laughs> she didn't even know they started the procedure yet. And the baby was already there. So here I am holding, holding this tiny newborn, expecting the nurse to take it back and do something with it. But she's leaving it with me. And I'm looking into his eyes and he's just looking up at me and the whole world changed because now I can't just do what I want anymore. Now I can't just concern myself with self. Now my interests go to others. That's the best illustration I can think of to define this for you. A Christian is a new creation. When I got married, everything changed. Everything was new. When I had a kid, everything changed. Everything was new. And for the Christian Everything changes. Your old self is dead. And that means the way in which you would treat others dies with it. Your list of keeping wrongs that need to be righted dies with it. Or else you're not new. Or else you're really not a Christian. So I, I, I hear that that's tough, but this is exactly what Jesus is laying out. Number two, or B as I have it listed here. The Christian acts without worldly discretion or discrimination. If you look with me in verse 45 in your Bible, you will see that as Jesus recounts how God treats one another, he says he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. What? (laughs) You're, you're, You're letting the sun shine on the evil? They don't deserve it. Are you kidding me? It's only the right. You know how hard it is. You know how long I've been going to church. You know how much money I put in the plate. You know how much I've sacrificed. 
I could be sleeping and watching the game. But no, I'm here serving God. And you're telling me you're going to let the sun shine on those people? It should only be who? It should only be me. It should only be the righteous ones. But that's not how God acts. However, this is how the world thinks. The world wants to discriminate between those who they see as good and those who they see as evil. But a Christian doesn't. We don't use that form of thinking because God doesn't use that form of thinking. God allows the good. He allows the rain. Is that the next example we have, right? And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. The the best picture I have for this in the Bible is a story of the um, Good Samaritan. You guys know the story? You, you, you had a beat up Jewish fellow left on the side of the road for dead. And then, thank goodness, here comes a Jewish priest. But nope, walks on the other side. Well, thank goodness, here comes a Jewish Levite. Take care of one of his own countrymen. But nope, walks by on the other side. But then comes a Samaritan. Now, Samaritans and Jews do not get along. They are enemies. I had actually printed off a whole bunch of reasons to explain to you how they're enemies. For sake of time, believe me, these two do not like one another. They argue with one another. The Jews believe the Samaritans have polluted the pure ethnic line that comes from Adam in their lives by marrying with them Gentiles. And so even as much as we hate Gentiles, we hate Samaritans even more. But here comes a Samaritan. And what does he do when he sees the Jewish guy? What does he say? Got what he deserves. Yeah, about time. We'd like to see more of your brothers lined up next. Is that what he says? His enemy against him. His enemy. What does he do? I have it up here on the screen for you. The Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. The Christian does not act with worldly discrimination between good and evil because he recognizes God's sovereign control. God will take care of the wrongs that are out there. God will set every record right. That doesn't mean you get to turn your nose up against those who you think are evil, who you are enemies with. Remember, your battle is not with flesh and blood anyways. God will resolve all these things. But for the non-Christian, they will only treat their neighbor with privilege or retaliation, dependent upon how they appear and look to them. Number C, letter C, the Christian lives for eternal reward. Look with me again once more in your New Testament, verse 46. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? There's a lot. There's, there's like six other sermons that I could say on this one. And so I, I, 30 seconds real quick. Look with me just in the next chapter, chapter six, because chapter six is all about reward. So what, what Jesus starts talking about here at the end of five, he picks up through the entirety of the next chapter. Look at verse one. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. For if you do, you will have no what? Reward. No reward. Uh, if you jump down, verse 3, or at the end, I'm sorry, at the end of verse 2, I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be done in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will 
reward you. Um, we, we can, and I'll just leave this for your own study, right? You can go down line by line by line by line. I wrote them down here. Um, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, and specifically verses 16 through 18, which I have up here on the... Oh, I don't have that up here on the screen. Oh, no, it is. 19 through 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure, read the word reward, treasure in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also the christian lives for eternal rewards but that's not how the world lives that's not how non-christians live the christian doesn't give only to receive but that's what the world does let me ask you the question have you ever been like this yeah, we're, it's very tempting to, to live this way. I'm really only going to try to help those who I can get a little bit of kickback from, right? You, you show me a dollar sign against it? Yeah, I'll show up. I'll give a little bit of my time. I'll give a little bit of my, my talent. I'll sacrifice a little bit of what I have if I think I can get something in return. Who thinks like that? A Christian or a worldly person? So the non-Christian only gives where he sees Value. The, the only illustration I can think of this in my life is when I was a kid and I would earn money, like when I was young. Do you know what I did with that money? <laughs> That's right. What does a young person do with money? They spend it. As soon as I get it, what is this good for? I, I got to get it out of my hand and spend it right away. But the older you get, the more you realize, I should probably save that. Similar fashion your rewards for living like a Christian may not earn you anything right now, but you'll be storing it up. You'll be putting it in the savings account for that day where you get to return all glory and thanks to Jesus Christ at his, at his return, at the coronation of the king when the angels cry, holy, holy, holy. This is where now you'll get to spend all that you will have saved by living as a Christian because you live for eternal reward. But that's not what these Pharisees are doing. That, that's not what's happening here by the religious leaders. In fact, uh, they are only welcoming their brothers. They are only being kind to those who they can get a return from. Uh, lastly, a Christian patterns his life after his heavenly father. A Christian patterns his life after his heavenly father. You have this in two places. I encourage you to underline them in your Bibles. Verse 45, he says, after he says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Verse 45, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. And then down at the very end, verse 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Where does Jesus get this from? Is Jesus making this up? Jesus is actually reading the Old Testament. I want to show you where this comes from. This is worth recording in terms of a reference in the margins of your Bible. Leviticus 11, 44 and 45. The law says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy. Why? Because I'm holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves on the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy. Why? Because I'm holy. Again, in Leviticus 19.2, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy. Why? Because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then one more in the New Testament, 1 Peter 1.15 and 16. Just as it is written, just as he who has called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. I want to share something that you just need to see in verse 42. Eight, it does not say 
Ready? It does not say, be perfect, therefore, as God is perfect. Does it say that? This is, this is critically important for us to understand this. It doesn't say be perfect because God is perfect. It says be perfect for your heavenly father is perfect. The criteria that determines a Christian isn't whether or not you believe in God. <laughs> Even demons know there's a God. What's the difference between God's perfection and your father's perfect? What's the difference there? And the answer is relationship. That's the answer. A Christian patterns his life after his heavenly father. He lives to further God's character and reputation by carrying his character and reputation in how he lives. But the non-Christian judges according to what he can get away with. What, what does the culture let me, to get, let me get away with? That's what I'm going to do. The Christian says, what would God do? When, when I was... Probably 12 or 13, I remember uh, we had a warm day in the spring, and uh, for gym class, we went outside. I think we were playing soccer or something, but I was um, of the age of super maturity that I was just goofing around the whole time, just trying to be a class clown, get, get the other kids to try to laugh. And I think it was uh, Mr. Baumgartner was my teacher. And as we were walking back in, he pulled me aside, not, in a, not in, a, in, in a harsh way. In fact, I was expecting to get a little bit of a tongue lashing from him. But instead, he said, you know, Ryan, I feel like it's time for you to grow up. He says, I know your father. I know Mark. And he doesn't act or talk the way you do. Anyways, I just wanted to share that with you. I think it's time for you to grow up. That's all he said. And I'm, I'm left there like, holy smokes. And to this day, I remember that conversation. And part of the reason I remember it is because he didn't tie my behavior to the school rules. He didn't tie my behavior to how I embarrassed him. He tied my behavior to how I reflected upon my father, who he knew. You, as a Christian, must characterize your life by your father. Otherwise, what are you doing? You're proving he's not your father. So, how do we do this? This is my application. Uh, number one, bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute you. That's what Jesus says. Uh, I, I'm getting that from this text right here with the harmonization of what Jesus says in Luke 6. How do you do that? Well, yeah, if, if somebody curses you, you son of a... You... What? Yeah, you, let me tell you what I think of you. This is what you are. Is that what you get to say? You get to curse for curse? No, you, you bless those who curse you. When somebody hates you, what should you do? You, you, you take some dog poop and you put it in a, in a bag and you stick it on their doorstep and you ring the bell. And... <laughs> I heard that. Don't do that. If somebody hates you, what should you do? You, you, should, you should bake them a plate of cook. Look what it says. Do good. It doesn't, it, it doesn't say just wish them well. It actually says do good. Go shovel their driveway. Go rake their leaves. Do good to those people who hate you. And if somebody's persecuting you, this is the person you're to pray for. Now, I'm going to end uh, the message here uh, with a story 
But, but I, I want to leave you with this because my, my, my hope is that you will, you will receive the application nodding your head like, yeah, I agree with that. That's what the Bible's saying. But how do I do that? Like, can you do this? How, how many of you are passing class at this? C plus and higher. Anybody? This is tough. Obedience to this application is very difficult. And so I am going to answer that question next week. So when, when we get together next week, we're going to talk about how can you do this. But I want to leave you with a story as we conclude this morning, uh, specifically because I know I have my missionaries uh, with us worshiping today. Uh, this is out, out of a book called Live Like a Jesus Freak, filled with stories of missionaries and those who have witnessed and given their lives as martyrs for the gospel in the name of Jesus Christ. Here's just very briefly, page and a half. Two Russian teenagers once had been schoolmates in a communist boarding school. Varya, a member of the communist youth organization, had constantly teased Maria, a Jesus follower. In response, Maria prayed for her friend with special concern. One day, Varya said, I can't understand what a being you are. Here so many insult you and so many hurt you, yet you love everyone. God has taught us to love everyone, not only our friends, but also our enemies, Maria answered. Can you love me too? Varya asked. And the two friends wept and hugged. Not long afterward, Varya became a Christian, and witnessed openly to everyone about it, even at the communist youth club meeting. Her bold stance for Christ earned her a stay in prison, where the two friends had a brief meeting before Varya was shipped to Siberian labor camps. Months of silence followed. Finally, Maria received a letter. In it, Varya wrote, My heart praises and thanks God that through you he showed me the way of salvation. Who can separate us from the love of God in Christ? Nobody, nothing, neither prison nor suffering. The sufferings that God sends us only strengthen us more and more in the faith of him. My heart is so full that the grace of God overflows. At work, they curse and punish me, giving me extra work because I cannot be silent. I must tell everyone what the Lord has done for me. Loving those who hate us may result in bruised bodies or bruised spirits. Yet Jesus promised that this trait would distinguish true believers from those who merely give lip service. We can't muster the power to love the unlovable any more than we can grit our teeth to stop feeling pain when a pounding hammer meets our thumb. But the supernatural presence of God in us does something that proves again and again the truth of the statement that when God owns us, we are never the same again. Let the God kind of love be your trademark. At school, at work, at church, at the mall, at your neighborhood, on the basketball court, wherever you find yourselves. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak through you. Allow him to guide your actions. The change in you may astonish others at first, including yourself, but keep at it. Love like that is love worth giving throughout a lifetime. Let's pray that God will help us to see the characterization of our witness as being a reflection of our God. 
so that wherever we find ourselves, we carry his reputation further by calling him our father. Will you pray with me this morning?